Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We taught the first two, the first chapter in two lessons, and last week, Sunday evening, we taught the second chapter, and this evening we'd like to direct your attention to the third chapter. Before we begin verse by verse, let me give you four thoughts here. In verses 1 through 4, you're going to find directions for life. Direction in life, you want to put it that way, direction in life. Verses 5 through 9, death in life. That seems to be a paradox, doesn't it? To find death in life, but that's one of the points here. And then uh, the third, uh, that was verses 5 through 9, death in life. And then uh, verses 10 through 16, demand in life. And verses 17 through 23, duty in life. Verse 24 and 25 will be the conclusion. We'll just call that conclusion. So direction in life, death in life, demand in life, and duty in life. But we all, we'll study it as we usually do, verse by verse, and try to, if you'll keep these titles in mind, it might help you to be able to comprehend and to get them in a division here as we study these thoughts. But first of all, let's talk about the risen life. Here's the direction, risen life. It says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of the God. Uh, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. And when we talk about direction in life in these first four verses, we're going to see, see several things. First of all, the risen life. If ye then be risen with Christ. Now, every believer, in, in a sense, is spiritually risen with Christ. Uh, we are resurrected with Christ in a spiritual sense, and we have identified ourselves uh, with a risen Christ by baptism. In uh, 2 verse uh, 12, it says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. So actually, we are spiritually resurrected, and we have symbolized it in a physical, literal ordinance of baptism and being resurrected in Christ. This shows forth Christ, the resurrection with Christ. Baptism is a symbol. It's a picture of that new life. You go back in Romans chapter 6, we'll read a verse to a scripture to help you. It says in verse 4, well, verse 3 says, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now, uh, baptized means to be immersed, so we could not actually literally be immersed into Christ's death. He died some 2,000 years ago, and we couldn't be immersed into his death except in a spiritual way, right? But then, baptism pictures that very thing because verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that life, see that word life? That life as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted or buried together in the likeness of his death, or we shall also be, be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So not only the likeness of his resurrection, that we're living a new life in Christ now, if you then be risen with Christ, back to our text in Colossians chapter one, uh, 3, verse 1, uh, we're not only risen with him in a new life now, but it's a promise of our future resurrection with Christ in glory. He's promised our future resurrection of the body. I want you to see now, Colossians 3, 1, always hold your place where we're studying because I try to cover so much ground, I cannot always stop and say, turn back to Colossians 3, verse 1. You hold your place there. 
and that way I can progress more rapidly. <laughs> okay? So we're talking about a risen life with Christ, aren't we? Now, we are actually risen with Christ. Now, John, in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said this. Now, listen carefully. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, that's judgment, but is passed, now listen carefully, is passed from death unto life. So the repentant, believing sinner, once he trusts in Jesus Christ, he is spiritually resurrected from being dead and trespassing sin. He's passed from spiritual death into spiritual life. And I trust that everyone here this evening is in, this, in the case or sense of spiritual life, that that's your position or standing right now. You're spiritually alive. You're no longer dead in trespasses and sin. That would mean unconverted and uh, living in sin and dead uh, spiritually. You're no longer in that condition if you've trusted the Lord as your Savior. You're spiritually resurrected. And that's what Paul is talking about in these Colossians. He says, if ye then... Right, actually, he's not saying if you're risen with Christ. It, it's, it's more the indication seeing you are risen with Christ. Since you have been risen with Christ. Since you are resurrected, he tells us to seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Now, so it is this direction in life is a risen life. The second thing is a seeking life. What are we seeking? We're seeking spiritual and eternal things. We're seeking those things which are above. Where is your goal tonight? What are you seeking after? He says, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Uh, Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we're, we're to seek the spiritual things and heavenly things where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He's already raised us up and made us sit together in heavenly places. In the book of Ephesians, the Bible tells us that we're resurrected and we're sitting together in heavenly places with Christ. And it says, set your affection on things above. Set your affection. In other words, this is a disciplined life. A disciplined life. You seek and set your affections on heavenly things. On things which are above. Not on things on the earth. Don't you have to discipline yourself if you set your affection on things above and not on things of the earth? Because ordinarily we set our affection on things of the earth. So we have to get some discipline in our lives in order to quit seeking the things of the earth instead of the things of the earth and seek those things which are above and set your affection on things above. What do you love most? That's what we're talking about. Let me give you some references in relation to this disciplined life. Look at Philippians 4, verse 8 and 9. Philippians 4, verse 8 and 9, it says, Now this is a disciplined life. It says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever Whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. You see, all of these things that we've pointed out, Philippians 4 verse 8, have to do with, with things that are spiritual in nature, not, not uh, earthly and not uh, having to do with the uh, carnal things of this life, but they have to do with higher things. A higher aspect of life. And that's why we're to set our affection on things above. Uh, Paul gives us a good example in verse 9. You still have it? Philippians 4 verse 9. He says, Those things which ye have both learned, look, and received, and heard, and seen in me do. And the peace of God shall be with you. Look at those words Paul used. He says, 
What you've learned, he says, put that into practice. What you've received and heard and seen in me, do. Five words. Learned, received, heard, seen, do. Those would be good. He's pointing to something that they had already been taught, something that, that they had received into their hearts, something that they uh, had seen it by his example. And then he says, follow or do that. And the God of peace shall be with you. So that's a disciplined life that we're talking about. 1 Peter 1 verse 13 helps us too. 1 Peter 1 verse 13, discipline our lives. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Gird up the loin of your mind. In other words, discipline your mind. You take some, give some attention to how you think and what you do. So we're talking about a disciplined life. Now in Colossians, again, verse 3 talks about a hidden life. For ye are dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. You're dead. In other words, you're dead to all the hopes of happiness in this world that this world could offer you. Do you believe that this world can offer you the happiness that you, that you need inside? This world cannot do that. And so you're really dead to all hopes here. It says you're dead and you're alive. Isn't this a kind of paradoxical language? He says you're dead but you're living. Isn't that something? He says you're dead and you're alive. Turns right around and says you're alive. Your life is hid with Christ in God. I like the next verse. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. So we have a hidden life. We're hid with Christ in God. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. Christ is the, is the uh, life of our very souls. He's the spiritual life that is in us, but also the manifested life. When Christ shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. You know, I, I love the assurance that you find in this verse. Look what it says. When Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you. It doesn't say then maybe, or then if you, or then you hope that you will appear. That's not the language of God's Word. You see, God's, God has given His Word to give us all absolute assurance of the life that we have with Jesus Christ after this life is over. He doesn't want us to wander through this life just hoping that maybe by chance, one chance in a million, kind of like these fellows that get their lottery tickets, you know, and just hope that they'll win. And their chances are one in ten million that they'll ever win anything. The Lord doesn't want us to just say we hope that someday we might make it by a slim chance of one in ten million. No. He says you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we know Christ is going to appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. I like that assurance, don't you? I don't want to have any doubt as to whether or not I'm saved or going to, to go to be with the Lord in heaven. Do you want to wander through this life and just kind of uh, go along and just always be in uh, doubt as to whether or not you will ever have a chance of making eternal life and heavenly glory with Jesus? I don't want that, and God doesn't want you to have that, and that's why the Word of God so divinely inspired, inspired gives us such great assurance. When Christ, who is Allah, shall appear, then shall ye also appear. See, there's no ifs or ands or maybes about that, is there? I don't find any word there that would show us any shadow of a doubt where we would not be assured of appearing with Christ in glory. So the manifested life. So we have the risen life, 
the seeking life, the disciplined life, the hidden life, and the manifested life. That's the direction of life. Seeking heavenly things and spiritual things, uh, knowing that I, we're dead to this world and to sin, and we're, the world has nothing to offer for us, but Christ is our life and has everything to offer us, and we live in a realm of, of the spiritual life and the Christ life, and we know that because He lives, we sing a song. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me a long life's narrow way. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he lives and dwells in us. We'll get into that later on down in another point of the message. So we find the risen life, the seeking life, the, the disciplined life, the hidden life, and the manifested life, all in these first four verses. Now then, pick up with verse 5, and we'll talk about death in life. You mean death in life? Let's look at it. Mortify, therefore, your members. In other words, there's some things you need to mortify your members. That means to... Put them to death, to deprive your members of all their power. To uh, You need to destroy this flesh and its strength to accomplish its evil design. Look at this verse. Let's read it. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection. That means unnatural and degrading passion. Evil concupiscence. That means strong desires toward evil. Uh, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Mortify those things. Put them to death. Crucify them. Don't let them have any way in your life. So we're talking about death in life. Putting certain, th- putting certain things to death. Destroying their power. Did you know the trouble with most Christians today? They're feeding the desires of the flesh, and therefore they fall into the sins of the flesh. You see, if you feed it, you, you feed those evil passions and carnal desires in your life, and when you do, all you're doing is saying, that's, that's the thing that's going to gain control in my life. And the more you feed them, the more they'll gain control. The more you mortify those things, the more you'll win the victory. And so we have a battle to fight. You say, well, the world, gives, the world with all of its allurements, well, they re- the world really gives me a problem. That's not half of it. You say, the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. But I'll tell you, the greatest enemy of your soul is the flesh within you. We think the old devil is right. You start dealing with yourself, and you start letting your carnal desires take control in your life, and those things will become so great of enemy, the devil will seem like a a midget in comparison. And so that's where a lot of Christians go wrong. They feed themselves, and there's too much on television that feeds those evil passions today. There's too much in the world that, that has a tendency to feed. Those evil desires uh, that are within every man, woman, boy, and girl. You say, well, preacher, I'm not bothered with that. Don't ever kid yourself. It's there. It's in every life. It's in every life of every... You're, you say, well, I'm a child of God. I don't have that problem. If you're a child of God, I'll guarantee you've got that problem. It's like the old Indian when he got saved, you know, he said, uh, they asked him, friend says, well, what does it feel like being a Christian? He says, it feels like two bulldogs on the inside fighting. one." Against the other. And that is the spiritual life and the fleshly life. And it's a constant warfare. The Bible says if we walk in the Spirit, we shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The Bible says the Spirit lusts against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit. And these are contrary the one to the other. So we have a battle to fight. Don't ever lay off a lot of the things that you lay off onto Satan or the world. A lot of it's just the old animal 
a carnal, sinful nature within you that you've got to fight against. And brother, if you don't fight against it, it'll take control of you. I'm, I'm telling you something that's good for you tonight. If you don't fight against it, it'll take complete control of you in more ways than one. So you, you try to do what God's Word says. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Put them to death. Uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. Finally, it gets down to covetousness. Covetousness, which is idolatry. The love of money more than the love of God. Worldly gain instead of the things that come from God. The Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, these necessary things of life, shall be added unto you. And I believe that if we'll put God first, He'll take care of our physical and material needs. But we must trust Him, first of all, and put Him first in our spiritual lives. So, and then it says, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Come on, my... See, God doesn't like this. It says, The wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. In verse 7 it says, In the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. As far as a Christian is concerned, he once, it should be said that he once lived in them, but... He, and he once walked in them, but now he no longer walks in them. He walks in a new life. And that's what Paul is driving at. He's, he's talking about a direction in life. We've dealt with that, but now he's talking about death in life. Putting away some things that should be put away in the Christian life. Use no member of your body to sin against God. Keep everything under dominion and control. And destroy the strength of any member of your whole animal nature that would take its power and control over you. Deprive it of its power. Then verse, and by the way, you can only do this by the grace of God. You can only do this as you walk with God and as you pray and use the means of grace. Let me tell you something. If you neglect prayer, if you neglect the Word of God, if you neglect the means of grace, then uh, you're not using the weapons that God has given you to, to fight this battle. And that's where a lot of people fail. They say, well, I just got out of church, and I quit reading my Bible, and I don't pray as regular as I should. The Bible teaches us that we need to pray. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Jesus said that men ought always to pray and not to faint. The psalmist said, Thou God that hearest prayer. What's he talking about? That's almost like another name for God that hears prayer. Thou God that hears prayer. Can you see that? It's as if it's just another name that he's the one that hears prayer. He says, Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Jesus said, When thou prayest, not if thou prayest, but when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth thee in secret shall reward thee openly. We need to do a lot of praying. We need a lot of private praying. We need a lot of Heart searching, praying individually. We pray with our families, that's fine. We pray in the church, that's fine. You need to get in private, away from everyone. Open it all up to God and pour it out to Him, and He can tell you what you ought to do. And He will. He's promised that. And He tells us that's the way it ought to be done. So, you know, they got on to Dr. Norris one time. They went out, some preacher brethren went out with him for breakfast, you know. And they asked grace, asked the blessing on the food. And Dr. Norris, he said somewhere after these words, he said, Thank you, Lord, for this food. Bless the use of our bodies and give us a good day or something like that. For that effect. 
Amen. And one of the preachers, is that all you're going to pray for? Aren't you going to pray for these people that are lost over here in the foreign lands? Aren't you going to pray for this and that? And that? He said, I did that kind of thing before I left home. There's a lot of our praying could be done at home or in private, in our study, in our closet. And that's what God would have us to do. Jesus said that. He said, you pray to your Father which is in secret. And your Father which seeth you in secret shall reward thee openly. He will live it out and make it known in your life. Okay, now then, let's note it. In verse 8, it says, But now you also put off. Now this is death in life. We're still, still talking about death in life. But now you also put off all these things. What's put off? Anger, wrath, malice. We've got to put these things away. You know, Paul was talking to the Colossians. He says, now, since you're Christians, since you're risen with Christ, you start putting off some things, right? Put off anger, and put off wrath, and put off malice, and blasphemy. Filthy communication out of your mouth. Brother, if there's one thing that disgusts me, abusive language. I go up here every once in a while to the donut shop, drink a cup of coffee, and some fellow comes in there and sit down. Maybe I've known him, one in particular, and I'm not going to call him names. Known him all my life. That's there and use the most foul language, and I just feel so embarrassed sitting there even listening to it. And sometimes I think, well, I hope they don't associate me with that fellow, at least by what he's saying. I feel like getting out of there quick, and usually I do, too. I'll put up with it a little while. Now, don't start telling on me, Linda. <clears throat> she says I don't, but I, when I finish my donut and coffee, I'll leave, but that's all. <laughs> But anyway, you know, doesn't it, doesn't it really get to you, though, when someone is talking ugly around you and you just hate to think that other people are going to associate you with that fellow? It does me. It does me. I just can't hardly stand it. And uh, I, don't want, I don't want to be around them very long. And you feel so sorry for them. And at the same time, in the same language, professing to be a Christian or a believer. In it all. I mean, really, let, letting you know that he's a believer. Brother, there's nothing more contradictory in my way of thinking than to see some fellow like that. But he says, put off the old, all these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. I've seen folks that couldn't open their mouth and say three words without one of them being vulgar. And that's, that's a terrible thing. And it's a habit with some people. Some people know it doesn't sound right, and they get in such a habit of it, they can't break it. We need to we need to break it. Yeah, you think it, they're limited to that vocabulary, okay? So the old man, his deeds, some of his deeds are mentioned here that should be put off. Now let's let's look at uh, verse nine. It says, "Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds." And those deeds we've just been talking about, right? Note the progress: anger, wrath, and malice. That's the progress in these words. Anger first, and then wrath, and then malice. It seemed like an increasing of the same thing that begins with anger. Okay, now in verses 10 through um, 16, we're going to give you demand in life. This is what we're to put on. God's Word demands that we put on some things, too. It says, and have put on the new man. See that? Verse, verse uh, 8 says, put off. Verse 10 says, put on. The children used to sing a little song in Sunday school. Take off the old robe and put on the new. That's what we're to do. We're to take off the old robe of the flesh. Put on the new robe of Christ's righteousness, and not only having his righteousness, but to put it on in the sense that it's on in our lives as Christians. Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. Now notice, these things are different than the fleshly things, aren't they? 
which, uh, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You see, the new things are spiritual in nature. They're not fleshly in nature. Knowledge after the image of him that created him. Let me look at Galatians, please, chapter uh, 5, if you will. Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Now I want you to look at verse 19. You have it? Galatians 5, 19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are these, and it calls the role. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, adultery, witchcraft, hatred, bearing, simulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envies, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of which I tell you before, as I've told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. People that do these things shall not inherit. They're living in the flesh and the works of the flesh. Did you know there are at least 17 different things that are mentioned here? If I had time, I'd give you the meaning of each and every one, but I don't have time right now. Then I want you to look at verse 22. But, you see that? Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, and they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and love. See that? Now I want you to compare two verses there. Verse 19 says the works, and that's plural, the works of the flesh, and it names those 17 different things. Works, plural. Look at verse 22. But the fruit, and that's singular. See that? The works of the flesh, and I gave you 17 different things that are each and every one, one of the works, and all together they are the works of the flesh. Now listen carefully. I'm trying to give you something. But verse 22 says the fruit, that's singular, of the Spirit. And even saying the fruit of the Spirit, it names a whole bunch of things. But they're all the fruit, singular. They're not the fruits of the Spirit, plural. But notice now, the fruit of the Spirit is. The works of the flesh are. Verse 19, verse 22. Look back and forth, back and forth. If you want to learn something, you follow this. The works of the flesh are. The fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. It's all of these. If you show me a person that has love, he has joy. He has peace. He has long-suffering. He has gentleness. You see? He has goodness. He has faith. If you have faith, you have these things. If you have love, you have these things. But they're all together as kind of a... A, a fruit that has all these blends and tastes in one fruit of your life. That's the Christian life. That's what we're talking about. Now then, back to Colossians, quickly. I want you to look at verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. It doesn't make any difference whether you're Jew or Gentile or whether you of the circumcision or the uncircumcision or the lesser heathen nations. You might extend it out and say barbarian, Scythian or something, bond or free. But Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. Look at this. We're to put on some things. Put on, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Look at that, what the Christian is to put on. And it says, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. Look at the thing the Christian needs to do. He needs to be forbearing. He needs to be forgiving. You know, Jesus said, if you come and ask the Father to forgive, he says, you forgive others' trespasses, 
or your heavenly Father will not forgive you of your trespasses. For Jesus, he says, when you pray for forgiveness, if you're not willing to forgive your brother, you just as well quit praying until you're willing to forgive. You ever thought about that? If I stand up here and ask God to forgive me of my trespasses, if I want his forgiveness, I've first got to be willing to forgive you. Now, Jesus said that. I didn't. He says, if you ask the Father to forgive your trespasses, you must be willing to, to forgive your brother of his trespasses. We're talking about spiritual condition of prayer at this point. So it says, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Did Jesus forgive us because we deserve forgiveness? No. He did it because we didn't deserve it. He did it because he is a forgiver. And you and I ought to do as he has done. Above all these things, put on charity. That word means love. Which is the bond of perfectness. Charity. Put on love. In other words, we must have love if we're to be more mature and perfect as a Christian. And look at verse 15. And let the peace of God rule in your heart. See that? Let the peace of God rule in your heart. Did you know if the peace of God is not controlling your heart, if you're not at peace with God, there's something wrong desperately as a Christian. It means there's something not right between you and God. You're not right with God. Let me put it in more plain language. If God's peace doesn't rule in your heart. And you say, well, preacher, how can I let the peace of God rule? Get everything out of the way that keeps it from doing it. He says, let the peace of God rule. Huh? Let it govern. Let it govern. Now then, uh, there's one thing that we have to be very sure of as a Christian. That we let God's peace control us and govern our lives. To the which you also call in one body, and be ye thankful. You're called to peace in one body, and be ye thankful. Verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the doctrine of Christ, the teachings of Christ, let the doctrines of the grace of God, let the teachings of salvation through Christ's redemptive work, let the atoning work of Christ, the substitutionary work of Christ, let the word of Christ or the teaching of Christ dwell in you richly. It has to do with the very word of God literally dwelling in you and being a part of you. There's one thing we must do is let God's Word be hidden in our heart. The psalmist said, Thy Word have I hid in mine heart. That's what it's talking about. Be so rich and filled with God's Word that it will literally dwell in your heart. When someone comes along and says, You ought to do this or that, what does God's Word say? We take our directions from God, don't we? The psalmist said, Order my steps in thy Word, and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. We need to speak God's Word. Let the Word of Christ Dwell in you richly. Now look, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Now look at this. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Brother, isn't that something? We're talking about New Testament Christian singing. That when we sing, we sing for the glory of God. And we sing unto the Lord. And we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That means you might even make it up as you go down the road. You can be singing to the Lord. It may not make, have any prose or poetry to it. But you're singing from your heart to the Lord. It's a rejoicing and singing. It's, it's singing from your heart to the Lord. And you're teaching and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. And that's what we ought to do is have a singing and a heart, a joy in our heart to the Lord. Now, 
if uh, if I'm singing, it does me some good, but I'm sure most of mine won't do you very much because it's so off-key and so unreasonable to think that that would be harmonious to your ear. But to me, it may be a great thing as I go down the road, as I drive, or as I uh, work, or whatever I do. And that's the kind of singing you need, too, individually. It's a part of your inward spiritual worship. So we're talking about that. Now then, verse 17. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do it for His glory. Giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Look, Christ is the one that we, we do it all to His name. And also, if we're thanking God for anything, it's through that same mediator. By Him. Giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Everything that God accepts of us is through Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and me and the man Christ Jesus. Even as far as our giving thanks. See that? By Him. Now then, in verses 17, we've begun already to show our duty in life. But let's pick it up with verse 18. It says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husband, as it is fit in the Lord. Paul says your own husbands too, by the way. Right? We've got a lot of that other kind of stuff going on today. And then it says, Husbands, love your wives. And I'm sure he means your own wives too. Right? Love your wives and be not bitter against them. We're talking about duty in life. You know, we have certain responsibilities today. Then it says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. It's good for children to listen to mother and daddy and to obey their parents. They may not always be right, and they may tell you to do some things you don't like to do, but you're to show that due respect to father and mother and obey. It says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now then, look at verse uh, 21. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. You see, fathers and mothers have a great responsibility. Do they not? I remember I used to break horses when I was, I used to ride when I was young. When I was 17, 18, 19 years old, I'd break horses to train them. We never let them buck or anything like that. We'd break them without that. But I was breaking a, you can break a colt, sometimes a two-year-old, and you start out and start breaking that colt, and you can uh, ride him so hard, till, and finally they'll just stall, and they won't do anything, and you'll break their constitution, and they'll just flat give up and won't do anything. Sometimes when we're too hard on children, we make as great a mistake as if, we're not, if we do not discipline them enough. And there's a happy medium. God's Word wants us to come to that happy medium. And it says, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. See, it'll break their constitution. It'll break them down. And then it says, Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. You're working for someone. We're, in those days, they had servants, literally, that were servants. Slaves, in a sense. And, uh, of course, even one, if you're working for someone, you're to, or in a sense, you're a servant of that one that you're employed unto. To your employer. And you're to obey them. They are, in a sense, your master or employer, according to the flesh. In other words, you're to, you're to do what they say. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. In other words, knowing that it's the right thing to do. Now then, look. In, and it says in verse 23, And whatsoever you do, do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men. In other words, do it with some heart in it. Do it with some zeal and desire to Please God. And whatever you're doing, say, well, they may, uh, my boss may have told me to do this, but I'm doing it because I know God has told me that I have a master in heaven, and though I'm serving a master here on earth, 
I'm doing it as unto the Lord. And I'm going to do it heartily as unto the Lord. You know, good Christians make good, good workers. Good Christians make good citizens. Good Christians make good people in the world. Don't ever kid yourself. It's not contradictory. It is in harmony with the Christian life to be these things. And Paul nails them down and says these are duties in the Christian life. Now then, the last two verses will give you the conclusion. It says this, Knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Christ is your Lord, and you're serving Him. And it says of Him you'll receive what? The reward of the inheritance. You know what kind of an inheritance the child of God, the Christian, has? You know what kind you have? You have an inheritance. Peter tells us, First uh, Peter chapter 1, he says you have an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Isn't that something? Now then, you might say, well, I have an inheritance of my family. Well, you may receive it and you may not receive it. You know, it happens both ways. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it does. Sometimes a complete stranger may receive your inheritance. That happens all the time. But, God says he's not only got an inheritance for you that's incorruptible and undefiled and fadeth not away, and it's reserved for you, but he says, I'm going to keep you for it. You're reserved for it, too. You are kept by the power of God through faith in the salvation. See that? It's one thing to have an inheritance and never receive it. It's another thing to have a blessed inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away, and it's... The guarantee is there that you shall receive it because he's not only going to keep the inheritance for you, he's going to keep you for the inheritance. I like that, don't you? God says, I'm going to make it work out. For all things work together for good to them that love God. The last thought is this. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he has done, and there is no respect of persons with God, of course. It doesn't say with God, but in other scriptures it does. With God, there is no respect to person. What do we say? That, that this life is important as to how we live it because Paul puts it in the book of Galatians, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you go about doing wrong and doing evil and sowing bad seeds, you're going to reap some of the same. If you sow wheat out here in the field, you can't go out there next to harvest and expect to, to reap a crop of corn or, or oats or something else. It's going to be wheat. That's what you sow. And if you sow oats, you're going to eat oats. If you sow barley, it will be barley. If you sow corn, it should be corn. So what you sow, you're going to also reap. And God says the law of harvest applies to the Christian. Now, in the Christian life, you, you may be saved by the grace of God. But if you go out here and you let the world or the flesh get the advantage of you and you start doing wrong and living wrong, you're going to leap for what you sow. There's been Christian people sometimes that truly born again child of God and they go out here and maybe they get off of the wrong crowd. Just just give you an example. Suppose they go out and, and they get intoxicated. They get drunk. They have a, an automobile wreck and they lose a leg or an arm or injured for life. Okay, they may repent and turn back to God, but they are, they're reaping and they are, they'll be reaping the rest of their life from sowing bad. David did that. David, when the kings went forth to battle, the Bible says he tarried still at Jerusalem. And you know what happened? He began to lust and look around and he took Bathsheba. And when his sin was found out, he tried to get uh, Uriah uh, killed. He did finally get him killed. He first tried to get him drunk. The Bible says, Woe unto the man that puts the bottle to his neighbor's lips. 